Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jennifer Frey. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, the host of the Virtue Blog, and a podcast called Sacred and Profane Love, which deals with philosophy and literature. She writes about virtue, action, and practical reason, and what it might mean to live well as a human person. She's a fascinating person. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jennifer Frey. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I think it's interesting. Somehow we connected through Twitter. I, I like Twitter I don't know. is weird. Yeah, and I, I, I like you follow. We followed each other somehow, and I started looking at your stuff, and I thought I want to have her on the podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, like, I think you were traveling this summer, and we decided it would happen sometime in September, and here we are. That's right. Yeah. Well, I was in Rome when you asked me to be on and I was uh, dragging uh, college students around Italy, but also my own kids. So I was like uh, really deep into a mess, uh, a wonderful mess, but a mess. So yeah, but I'm, I'm really glad to be here. You are like, there are certain uh, philosopher kind of love stories I know about. Like, uh, well, actually there's only one other one robert solomon who was a philosopher like a he was like a um nietzsche scholar right and he was married to a nietzsche scholar i forget what his wife's name was but so i was thinking you i think is your spouse a philosopher too my spouse is a philosopher because i saw yes. on the website unless it was your sibling or something because you look like <laughs> compatible so your your spouse christopher frey you are both philosophy professors at the same school that's right that is fascinating. Like, I mean, how did you meet? Did you meet in school? Did you meet at a conference? Did you yeah, meet well, like we, at a bookstore? What was it? No, we met we met at the airport. So we were both prospective grad students at the University of Pittsburgh. And we were waiting for the same person to pick us up. And then we figured out that we were both waiting for the same person. Uh, but it was definitely not love at first sight. Um, really far from that. So. I mean, it looked. It probably was for him, but I mean... <laughs> Right, I mean, I'm guessing. <laughs> You'd have to ask him. But, uh, <laughs> but it definitely was not for me. Um, and, you know, because, like, like, I'm Midwestern. I'm from Ohio. He's from Los Angeles. I, we just fundamentally didn't understand one another. Um, but also, we were coming... Um, Coming from very different philosophical traditions, even though we both ended up going to the to the same uh, department, so we both went to the University of Pittsburgh to get our PhDs in philosophy. But I was coming out of a very um, historical tradition, so I didn't think of philosophy as like a bunch of abstract problems that I might think about in an ahistorical way. And he is coming from the sciences and from math and logic, and he's thinking that. Philosophy is a bunch of abstract, you know, problems that anyone who is smart can think about. 
Um, and so at first, like, I felt like I didn't really have anything in common with him. Um, but then he fell in love with Aristotle and I had already fallen in love with Aristotle. So So it's like a love triangle. That's right. It's really Aristotle that brought us together. They said like Heidegger used to like teach like this. He would be like Aristotle. He was born, he lived, he worked, he died. Let's talk about his thought. So that's not the way you were you were thinking you'd approach philosophy, right? Yeah, <laughs> you no. contextualize things a little more. That's right, exactly. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much you know about analytic philosophy. Um, I, I went to a very analytic philosophy department. Um, and one common criticism of analytic philosophers is that they think very ahistorically um, and... I think in some sense, that's a criticism that I think that analytic philosophers deserve um, and that we need to recognize, you know, uh, what Hegel might call like the progression of Geista, right? Like, like we need to understand that uh, we ourselves are historically bound and contextualized. And so, of course, our thought is, um, which isn't to say that um, there's no such thing as like objective truth or right and wrong. It's just to say that if you want to think about, say, the problem of universals, um, it would be pretty weird not to look at what Aristotle and Plato and the medievals um, thought about it, because uh, you might, right, you might just be reinventing the wheel or something. Yeah. And even if there is like a universal truth that that it only comes to us through the particulars, right? You can't get out of history and then and get this place where you can you can only find the universal in particular times and places, right? Yeah, well, certainly in this life, there's no no getting <laughs> right. out of history. No, no. <laughs> so there's sometimes really we'd like to. I, but... I really wish I could. Yeah, gotta, uh, gotta be honest. So you two, so this is interesting. You're a philosopher that is is also religious. You. Uh, you guys are, are you Roman Catholic? I mean, I, uh, yeah, I'm Catholic. I, I figured I, we did actually talk about, it. I forget in the pre interview few minutes of foray and conversation, but, and also I, I took that from listening to your podcast, uh, sacred and profane loves <laughs> you get because, a Catholic vibe? <laughs> yeah, well, you can interview a lot of Dominicans and most people yeah. just don't know. It's like, you know, they say like with the Trump, with the whole Mueller thing, like, Come on, most people, politicians just don't know this many Russians. Like, most Protestants <laughs> don't spend time with this many Dominicans. So I kind of thought, yeah, yeah, it's right. So, so, so were you and your husband both religious when you came to philosophy? Or was that something that philosophy, you know, was, was philosophy a kind of handmaid or midwife for that? Or how was... How is that for both yeah. of you? So here my husband's experience is completely different from mine. So my husband's a cradle Catholic, um, and I was raised in a religiously indifferent house. So there was really no God in my house. Uh, so he's, he's raised cradle Catholic in L.A., you are a secularist in Ohio. That's, That's fantastic. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, my parents um, were, I mean, they didn't like hate God or something. It was just a lot of, uh, indifference and we definitely, I mean, so one thing that was clear to me growing up was just that we don't, we don't go in for this, you know, everyone around us does. So I was the only like atheist that I knew. Um, so you were an atheist. You weren't just like, indif- you're like, Hey, I, 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 I'm a disbeliever. I'm conscious about well, it. Well, so eventually, yes, I think as a kid, I was indifferent. Um, but I think that maybe when I was like 14 or 15, 
um, when I actually stopped to think about, you know, the respect in which I was different, I decided I was definitely an atheist because I didn't know any intellectually serious believers. So I mostly grew up around um, a kind of Christianity that was like, um, I don't know, you know, it's it's the kind of Christianity where it's like, have you been saved? Just say this prayer and give your heart to Jesus and you're saved. And it like, it doesn't matter what you've, what you've done or what you will do or what you're like as a person. Um, you're just saved. Like you're good to go. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I can't. Um, and just sort of, it, it was a solution looking for a problem for you. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know because I, I think I recognized, you know, that people might need uh, to be redeemed. You know, I sort of recognized that people were troubled and bad, um, which is precisely why I thought this idea that you could just be saved and it didn't matter. Like, um, you didn't have to be invested in like being a better person because you're saved. I thought, well, no, you should, you should actually, um, you should be given good reason to want to be a better person. Um, and there was no framework for that. Um, and it was also a kind of biblical literalism and fundamentalism. And I was like, you guys just don't know how to read a book or a story. Um, and also, um, you know, just a, just a kind of, um, kind of conservative conservatism that had no appeal for me. And so I think I had a kind of, this was before the new atheist, but I think I had a kind of new atheist mentality, you know, like religion is just a crutch for people who can't accept the truth. Um, it's a cold and lonely world. <laughs> you were new atheist before new atheism was cool. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, but anyway, then I went to college, um, and I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, which is an amazing school at the, the time. The Hoosiers. That's right. The Hoosiers. Uh, and yeah, I just, like, I was ready for the intellectual life. Um, and I was in love with my philosophy classes. And my uh, first philosophy professor was a religious Jew. Um, so he was an Orthodox Jew. You know, like, he kept kosher and he wore a yarmulke. And, but he was also the smartest person I'd ever met in my entire life. Like, he went to Balliol College, got his PhD in philosophy at Harvard, worked with Stanley Cavell. And, you know, I was just totally mystified by this. I'm like, you are the most cultured, like the smartest person I've ever met. I just don't understand why you're religious. Like this doesn't, this doesn't fit. Um, and so he was, he was really gracious. Um, and, and he would sort of talk to me about it. Um, about what it meant to him and why, and it became clear. And this is interesting too, because this is you know Judaism is a non-missionary religion, so it, you know a, a, a sort of certain kind of Christian philosopher might be more inclined to sort of proselytize or outreach a little more. But my guess is an Orthodox Jew is answering the questions very open-handedly, right? I mean, he's not really probably he's probably not selling much. Probably. No, he's not trying to sell. He's not like trying to convert me. <laughs> that's 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 not what was happening. But like, I was asking him philosophical questions, and of course, he's also a philosopher. Um, but at any rate, it was the first time in my life that I realized um, you could be intellectually serious um, and be religious. Uh, that was a thing that might happen. And at any rate, then I started taking course. This was a course in existentialism. 
Um, so we were sure. reading, it was started with Descartes with the meditations, but we ended up reading like a lot of Kierkegaard and stuff. And I loved Kierkegaard. And, uh, then what I, what did you love? What did you love about Kierkegaard? Like at that point, what was it that was gripping? I mean, do you remember how you felt when you were reading him? Um, I felt like, you know, the rug was taken out from under me. Um, because again, you know, here's, here's a Christian, um, doing philosophy, saying things that are really challenging to my entire worldview. And like, I don't have a response. And the Kierkegaard that I was reading at the time was a present age, which I think remains uh, one of the most salient philosophical texts. Like, like if I could give a teenager anything right now, I feel like I would just give them the present age, um, especially in the age of social media. Um, but yeah, we were also reading um, his stuff on Abraham and the Night of Faith. Uh, and yeah, so I was really into that. But then we started, um, we, I, I started studying medieval philosophy. Um, and that was when I sort of fell in love with Aquinas, um, through a Dominican theologian named Surveys Pinkers, um, who had a book called The Sources of Christian Ethics. And, uh, sort of going through like this idea that, um, morality is about happiness. Um, and we need the virtues in order to be happy and what happiness is and how grace fits in that. Um, it was sort of going through the realist nominalist debates, um, in the high middle ages. And yeah, then I started reading Aquinas, uh, and I kind of never, never stopped <laughs> still reading so, Aquinas. <laughs> So, so at some point, like, are you like, well, look, if I'm this big a fan of Aquinas, I, I guess I got to just join the team or what? Well, yeah, no, it wasn't quite that straightforward. So I wasn't just reading Aquinas. I was also reading Augustine. And I think Augustine's confessions um, probably had the most impact on me as a text. Um, you know, I sort of felt like when I closed the confessions you know, there was something that I could no longer turn away from. And I thought about, you know, I mean, I, I knew that like I was probably going to become a Christian, but I didn't know what kind. Um, but I didn't find Protestantism theologically um, all that appealing for a bunch of reasons, but I definitely studied, uh, top three reasons. Protestantism was not, <laughs> was not for you. Like, I feel like you're like, I imagine you like, a, like, like the educated, dispassionate car shopper. Like, all right, not the Kia, not the Mercedes, not the, like, so you're kicking well, the tires of the I Protestants. Mean, to be honest, like, fundamentally, sola scriptura to me was, was absurd. Okay. Um, yeah. and I just couldn't take it seriously, but then there were also a lot of issues about grace, um, and free will. And, um, and also just kind of the state of Protestantism as I was living, you know, I mean, so Christianity isn't just an intellectual position. Um, so I'd have to join a Protestant church and it turned out that really didn't seem appealing to me. Um, and so then it was a question of Catholicism or orthodoxy and theologically, I don't think they're that different. Um, and then it turns out that in my own family, um, you know, my, my dad's family were Italian immigrants. And so they were all Catholic. They ended up losing their faith because they ended up in Western West Virginia where there just was no church. Um, and so I felt like I felt As every atheist, every family falls away from God in West Virginia, then winds up in Ohio, <laughs> all these seething <laughs> hotbeds of godlessness. That's right. Yeah. So, so it was kind of like a re a reconnection, you know, like, like, 
I have a picture of the church and the small town uh, in the Italian Alps where like pe- people in my family would have been baptized. Um, and so there was that too. But yeah, so I ended up becoming Catholic after reading a lot of Aquinas and Augustine. That's beautiful. You know, it's interesting. I, I think probably for someone philosophically minded that was thinking maybe I'll become a professional philosopher. Catholicism probably is a little bit of a better spot than, than orthodoxy, right? I mean, like it, it, yeah. it's, it's, pro- it's a tradition that's probably more amenable to the, well, the Western philosophical <laughs> tradition, right? And, yeah, and also yeah. develop, developmentally, I think Catholicism is able to make space for philosophical development and, and help that work with faith in a way that that's just kind of not the orthodox. I, I, mean, I was hanging around with, at a Byzantine seminary in Pittsburgh, the Byzantine Catholic seminary, but they're all trained like Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. And I, I was talking to them, they're like, ah, oh, Aquinas, that's modernity, like to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I think like, so. Yeah, yeah they don't. Yeah. I mean, and they tend to be, and now I'm speaking in generalities, but yeah, there tends to be a kind of downplaying of reason um, and a lot of um, a lot of emphasis on mystery. And of course, Obviously, at the end of the day, you know, you do have to say something hand-wavy, like, well, it is a mystery, um, but it turns out that actually reason is, reason can penetrate <laughs> uh, a lot there. A it lot depends at what, at, what, at what point in the game you wave your hands, right? Yeah. <laughs> is it right in the beginning or is it a little, you know? That's right. Yeah. I, 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 I want to say reason can actually go pretty far. It, it, it can't go all the way and, and the Catholic tradition never supposed that it could, right? So, um, faith is a perfection of the intellect. It's a perfection of reason of our capacity to know and understand. Um, but you know, grace perfects nature. Um, and, and our reason is, is our highest capacity. Um, and, and we ought to exercise it to the fullest extent. So, your husband as a cradle Catholic, is it, are, are you, are converts the worst? Are you like so, so zealous? Like there is no meat on Fridays. There is not. I mean, like, like, how do you guys, yeah, how course, is your, converts I'm, I'm, are the worst. Right. I mean, right. It's totally it's right. It's funny because now I've been Catholic, uh, you know, more of my adult life than not Catholic, uh, because I'm old, but, um, yeah, converts annoy me. You know, I'm just like, oh, shut up. <laughs> like, like you didn't invent this. <laughs> like, here comes the rite of initiation class. Oh, boy. I know, but it's kind of like, you know, I'm a mother of six. So it's like whenever a, a new mother, like, c- comes to me and it's like, I figured this all out. I'm like, no, sweetheart, you haven't. But I love you, right? Um, we, we've all been here before. So I have a heart for converts, but of course they're annoying. Um, it's just baked into the whole experience. Um, and of course... I think, yeah, I think, well, obviously I drive my husband nuts. Um, it's my job, but, uh, <laughs> I think I also drive, you know, his family nuts because, um, cause I, cause I do still have, I, I have retained some of my initial zeal and I am a stickler for the rules for sure. I, I wasn't raised in a home that was super observant religious or anything that we were, we, I was baptized Methodist, but came to Christian faith much, you know, later is it like a pre, on the cusp of adolescence and it was a real conversion for me, but I was talking with somebody uh, uh, sorry, on this podcast, an author who's not religious and saying, you know, it was, it was, Christianity opened the world to me. Like it was a very world affirming thing. And I, I, it, it seems like Catholicism had that effect for you. Like it, it, it didn't close doors down intellectually to open them. It seems like it, 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 it connected dots in the world rather than, um, disintegrated seems 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I don't know where I would be if I, if I weren't a Catholic. Um, but I doubt it would be very good. You know, I was, um, a really confused kid. Um, and of course I engaged in a lot of, um, problematic, stupid behaviors like any teenager. Um, but it just fundamentally at the end of the day, like I didn't have a story about anything that made any sense. And, and that's a really anxious space to occupy. And I think I was drawn to philosophy because I thought like, Hey, somebody, you know, like the philosophers have surely figured this out. And, um, you know, to some extent you, you can read, um, Aristotle and get a picture of the world, um, that makes sense. But it is a picture without hope, um, in a in a strong sense. Um, I what mean, is this that Dante says that in in the, the last l- level of, of purgatory limbo, where you know Aristotle and Plato, they are they, they, you know, they these are the, the 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 pagan saints, the virtuous pagans. And there's that line that Virgil says, right? That they 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 have uh, desire without hope. Exactly. Like the, so the, um, I just taught this this morning. Uh, I have a reading group here uh, with students, and we're reading the Divine Comedy. And actually, today we were talking about the virtuous pagans, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating part of the poem because Dante, I think, like Aquinas, wants to have it both ways with the virtuous pagans. You know, on the one hand, he wants to acknowledge um, that. He wants to acknowledge their tremendous uh, contributions, but also the fact that they were good people. Um, so he says things like, well, you know, you don't hear, hear the wailing or the lamentations, but you do, you do hear these like deep sighs. Um, and he says, yeah, they don't, he's like, they're not suffering, but they live without hope and constant desire. And it's like, well, that sounds a lot like suffering. Um, I know it's not the suffering that you see once you peer over the edge, like they're on the precipice of a much deeper kind of suffering, but it's, you know, it doesn't seem like a condition you'd really want to be in and it's still hell. Uh, yeah, but I think for me, um, the Christian vision of the world was, um, well, at the end of the day, I, I thought that it was true. Um, and so one has to, one as a human being, one has to follow what one takes to be true. Um, but I think that for me, li- living without hope was not, was not a real possibility. So unlike Camus, I cannot imagine Sisyphus happy in any meaningful sense. Um, yeah, because Camus, he's trying to point, paint a picture of like not post-Christian but pre-Christian, like like paganism before Christian, like a kind of uh, yeah, a, a simpler sort of uh, unreflect. <laughs> I mean, I, I, right? I mean, Camus, it's it's interesting because he's trying to almost it seems like go to a place before the kind of Judeo-Christian thing changes Western culture. Well, I mean, I think Camus just um, yeah, I mean, for Camus, what was the question of philosophy? It was whether or not to kill yourself. Um, yeah. And that really spoke to me, actually, as an 18-year-old, um, because that, yeah, that seemed to me like the question, like, actually, why not? I mean, what what am I living for, given that living is hard? Um, what am I living for? And I think I didn't really have an answer to that question. I mean, I think the truth was I was living for myself, and that didn't seem very interesting or worthwhile. Um and I think for Camus, though, 
you know, if you take seriously what he took to be true and I take to be false, namely that the world is meaningless, right? Um, it's literally unintelligible. There is no deep meaning to it all. Um, you're just born and stuff happens and then you die and there's no reason for any of it. He thinks that the, the hero, his hero, um, sees that in a really clear eyed way and embraces it. Right. Um, so it's a way of having the courage to live in, in the truth. Um, but I came to see that, um, I thought it was false. I think it's false to say that the world is meaningless. I think that if you just look at science, um, you can see that the world is not, in fact, meaningless. There's an intelligible order there. And that always raises the question, well, how can this be? Um, and for me, like, that leads back to the question of how an intelligible, intelligent order came about. Um, and, and, and so I think we should reject Camus, um, Camus, you know, his first premise, namely that the world is meaningless. I think it's, that's demonstrably false. Um, and, and we can know that through reason. And I think that it's true. I think that Aquinas was right. And the Catholic tradition has it right that reason points us in the right direction. Um, and it is possible to know through reason that God exists. Um, but it is not possible through reason to know the true nature of God. And for that, we need revelation. We need faith. It's, it's interesting. Something that has struck me a lot over the past year or two, and, and talking, some, some of this is talking about with guests about Aristotle, but you know, at, we know a lot more about the world than Aristotle did, even though he's a guy that tried to consume everything that he could to know about the world, yeah. you know, that he could, but we may know a lot more about the world, but we're less at home in it. I mean, we don't feel, whereas he felt at home in the world, you know, that, that there's something. And what does he say that it's, it doesn't Aristotle say something like if there's something wrong, if your if your theory doesn't go with the doxa with the, or something like change the theory, like with, with the perception, how mm-hmm. things like seem. And so like, there is something kind of intuitive, like uh, the first notion you have in, in life, isn't that the world is meaningless. It's something that in suffering in confusion, you can always go to, but almost your first sort of intuition is that, it does sort of make sense somehow, right? Well, I think we have, I mean, I think, you know, that, that in a way is grist for Camus mill because he wants to say, um, part of the absurdity that Camus wants us to face head on is this, is the fact that, um, we are beings with reason. And so like, we're driven to make sense of things. He's like, but it's, but it's a farce because it turns out things don't make sense. Um, and so you're just stuck, right? You're stuck with what Aristotle would call the desire to know. You're stuck with this capacity to reason, which wants to order everything in some kind of logical way. Um, he's like, but it'll never be satisfied. Um, and, and the, again, his, his kind of hero, um, embraces it. So his hero is Sisyphus. Sisyphus is doomed. Sisyphus is absolutely doomed by the gods to a meaningless life. So it's sort of like the dark existential glass ceiling. You're never going to advance beyond this. You have this desire to know, but you're never going to get above it. So yeah, yeah, that's a it dark... It is really dark. And I think it's a mistake, though, to poo-poo Camus or to make fun of him. I actually think it's important to take... Camus seriously, because it's important to ask yourself whether you can imagine Sisyphus happy. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Camus sort of saw a problem clearly. Um, and yeah, you, you study virtue theory and, and I do, and, and you've actually got a big grant to like have a project or you do a podcast. And it's so interesting, like that virtue, I mean, what, this is, you know, you think of uh, Alistair McIntyre's famous book, After Virtue, right? That we live in this sort of age where it's sort of, we seem like we have this, it's sort of like a post-apocalyptic moral world in yeah. some ways. Right? That, that we, is that is that part of why this is the direction of your work? I mean, is it, Alistair, do you think that virtue is... Can... Yeah, Alistair, somehow, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue made its way into my hands when I was, I think I was 19. And yeah, I think it's a big reason why I'm doing what I do right now. It was a huge influence on me. I read that book and I was like, this man is a prophet. <laughs> like, I literally, I was just, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like a kid, you know, and, and this is blowing my mind. Um, I, of course, now I'm a scholar, so I have all kinds of issues uh, with After Virtue from a scholarly perspective, but it really did get a grip on me. And yeah, that first chapter in particular where he says, well, you know, we live in a time of emotivism. It's really actually just a description of what's going on rather than a theory, um, where emotivism is the idea that like value actually just tracks your emotions. Yeah. If I um, say murder is wrong, I'm really saying murder. Ew. Yeah. It's like, like I, boo. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. And you don't need to spend more than 30 seconds on Twitter um, to realize that, yeah, maybe it is a description. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I had this guy on, I was still telling you about this before we started recording, Michael Patrick Lynch. He's a, a philosopher at UConn. And he, in this book, uh, Know It All Society, that subtitles Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture, he talks about how, what if we replace these emoticons on Facebook with, on these art, you know, when we see things that are about news stories and this and that, what if we, instead of a, you know, this, the poopicon, a poopicon or the smiley kind we had, um, justified by the evidence, not justified <laughs> by the evidence or need more information. So he's saying, he, he, right. So he's funny. It's funny because he's describing in the, our conversation that. He is having drinks with some big executives from Google and Facebook mm-hmm. and stuff. And he says this. And they did that. They started laughing. And they're like, oh, guys, hear this. Say it again. Say it again. So they thought he was a jo- it was a joke. But he said, you know, what I realized was how smart they were about not just about how silly this would be for marketing, but also how I didn't understand the economy of this. Mm-hmm. If that was even possible those statements would become the new emoticons That's that right. we wouldn't, we wouldn't just be, but we wouldn't really be saying justified by the evidence. We'd just be saying that's our new happy emoticon. That's right. And exactly. It, it's, so it's, it's, he just talks about the whole, everything, the emotivist thing is so, uh, it's like, it's like social media puts it on steroids. Yeah. Honestly, there's nothing more depressing than philosophers on Twitter. Like we should just all get off. I mean, you don't depress me on Twitter. I like you on Twitter. <laughs> that's so nice. I don't find you depressing. Um, well, it, yeah. I mean, it, the thing that's depressing to me about it is to see philosophers fail to think. It's like, come on, guys. It's our one job. It's our one job. We're supposed to be the thinkers. Um, and yeah, it's it's just a lot of emoting. Um, but for me, um, I would say the thing that got me into moral philosophy, but also one of the things that led me uh, to the church was this idea that... Um, virtue is simultaneously um, a thing that's essential and also lost to us. Um, and that we really need to figure out how to recover this. Um, I mean, I, I just do a little thing with my students uh, every semester 
if I'm teaching moral theory and I say, uh, what are the theological virtues? Nobody knows. I've done it in the Bible wow. Belt. I'm here in the South, which supposedly everyone's a Christian. No one can say. And I'm like, that would be a great like thousand dollar Jeopardy question. And I'm just like, like, well, uh, let's just think about St. Paul, you know, and then like half of them don't know who St. Paul is. I mean, I'm, I'm the one thing that I'm constantly struck about and and that strikes me constantly. And this sort of gets to the podcast uh, that I do, um, is just how illiterate we all have become. Um, we're biblically illiterate. Even most Christians I meet are absolutely biblically illiterate. Um, but we're also just illiterate. I mean, nobody's read Homer or like maybe they read some Shakespeare in high school. Um, if you want to talk to them about Madame Bovary, they're just like, what's that? Who's Flaubert? I don't know. Um, so we don't have like, we don't have this stock of stories anymore that we tell ourselves. Um, and you know, again, it's like, you want to ask them, well, like, what, what are the theological virtues? And like, they have no idea. And you're like, well, what does St. Paul say? No idea. Like, who's St. Paul? Um, and then you're like, faith? And like, then some eyes, like, you see some recognition. And then you're like, hope? And then they're like, oh, and like, love? <laughs> I'm like, yes, faith, hope, and love. Have you ever thought about what those are? And they haven't. They're like, well, those are feelings. I'm like, those aren't feelings. Those are virtues, right? What's a virtue? And they're like, I have no idea, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's about trying to recover this idea that, look, if you want to be happy where that's not um, a really shallow thing, that comes and goes like the weather, but it's like something like if you want to flourish or live well as a human being, um, then you need to have the right kind of soul or character. You need to be the right kind of person. Um, and so you need to cultivate these virtues, um, given the kind of thing that you are. It's amazing to me, like if you say this to an 18 year old, it will immediately make sense to them, but it's also something they've never heard. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter in what religious tradition that they're raised. It's not like a Roman Catholic is more likely to be like, oh yeah, I totally learned that in CCD. No, they didn't. Um, they learned something like, yeah, maybe God exists and there are a bunch of rules. Maybe they do or don't matter. Whatever. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, 
Shimon Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Did you find yourself in the role of that Orthodox Jewish philosophy professor for students? Are they kind of like, wait, you're smart and you're religious and what's the deal? Like have students come to you with those sorts of questions? Absolutely. I mean, I, students have come to me and (laughs) all manner of students, you know, have, have come to me in all manner of existential crises. And I'm actually really happy to be there for them. And so far as I can. That's going to be beautiful for you. I mean, given your story, I mean, the fact that you could kind of pay that forward. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, these kids, they remind me of me when I was a kid. Um, And they're just, they're just like, like the ones who are really hungry. Um, I mean, I don't want to give you the false impression that there are just hordes of students beating down my door. Uh, Not true. (laughs) Um, But the ones who are really hungry to try to understand things, it's deeply existential. And they're looking for someone who is willing to listen to them and try to understand them. And they definitely don't want someone who's just going to preach at them. And I'm a philosopher, so I'm never going to do that. You know, I'm just going to... I'm going to try to be a midwife to something um, and bring out their thoughts. Um, and I'm do, also, do you find, sorry, do, go ahead. Okay, now, do your colleagues ever look upon you with skepticism because of your religious commitments? Or like, I mean, oh. how honest a philosopher can you be? Come on, you're in the, you're, you're in the pocket for the Vatican. Yeah, I think my Catholicism is a huge professional liability. There's no, the empirical data for this is overwhelming. I mean, the thing is like for me, um, I never got into philosophy to be a professional philosopher. Um, so the fact that I'm a professor is really great. Um, but it, it wasn't exactly what I was in it for. <laughs> um, I was just trying to understand myself. Um, and so for me, it was like always deeply existential. And when I was in grad school, you know, you're always given a certain amount of advice, but especially if you're a woman, there are very few women in philosophy. And if you're a woman, you know, the advice is, um, you know, to put, to put your head down. Absolutely. Don't have kids. I had four kids in grad school. They're like, don't, don't let anybody. I was like an outspoken Catholic with, with four kids. I was like always pregnant. Um, I broke every rule of success that there is. I think in part because maybe I just didn't care or maybe I'm just really bad at um, being diplomatic. I don't know. Um, but for me, I just always felt like, you know, philosophy either has a place for me or it doesn't. Um, but professional philosophy isn't isn't all that there is if you um, are interested in the intellectual life. So I guess at some level I was willing to let the chips fall where they may. In part, that was easy for me because I was really confident that my husband would <laughs> get a job. <laughs> so I'm like, well, at least we'll have food on the table. Uh, but sure, it's a professional liability. Absolutely. What is your parish like that you go to? What's my parish like? It's nice. Um, you know, it's... I've, I've been to like every kind of parish. So my parish right now is the first parish I have where... Um, the majority of the people attending it aren't 
intellectuals. So that's been an interesting adjustment for me, but it's good. Like it has, do you you find yourself saying like, I just wish the priest would read a little more Aquinas, just a little more. Well, of course I have all kinds of terrible thoughts I shouldn't have about homilies and everything else. Um, but have you ever heard the show, the Catholic guy with Lino Rulli on Sirius XM? No. He used to have this guy, Father Rob, who was his co-host. And Sir, Sir, Lino's like a, I think it kind of had a reawakening faith and still pretty funny guy. Kind of Howard Sternish almost. And they would have this sh- this segment every week, Mystery Homily Theater, and he would critique Father Rob. <laughs> Homilies. And at one point he'd go, and so we come to this Eucharist. And Lino would go, okay, Father Rob's landing the plane now. Put up your trays. He gave the Eucharist line. <laughs> I mean, to be totally honest, I have six kids. And most of the time I'm just yelling at my kids. And right, I have just, no idea. Sh- 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 what, sit, sit, yeah. sit. Yeah. So the homily could be great. It could be terrible. I'm just yelling at kids to stop picking their nose. That's good. You're good being a good mom. You're fulfilling your calling, your duty. You know, this is a good virtue as a parent to keep the peace in, in the man. Yeah, I have four boys, so I'm I'm right in the thick of it. So so your worship life, is. it sounds like very, now it sounds like at least is very much like what a lot of average Catholics experience. It's not a sort of university parish, this dashing, intelligent Dominican <laughs> friar, you know, waxing, you know, I, 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 so, you're kind of, you've got a normal Catholic life. I do, except I do hang out with some very dashing Dominican friars on the side. Hey. Um, Can you get into the order if you're not dashing? I mean... <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm super blessed because I, you know, I, so I'm a speaker for the Thomistic Institute. Um, so the Dominican friars in Washington, DC have these, um, they have the Thomistic Institute and they have 35 chapters, I think now in the U S. Um, and so I'm always flying everywhere talking philosophy with college students. Um, and there's, there's usually like a Dominican friar, um, associated with a chapter or at least adjacent to it some way. Um, so yeah, the Dominican have become a, a huge part of my life, um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, there are no Dominicans here in South Carolina. I mean, South Car- somehow I managed to live in the state that has the smallest Catholic Roman Catholic population in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, now now I live as a religious minority. It's it's interesting. I spent like uh, a week on a retreat with the uh, the uh, Norbertines in Paley, Pennsylvania. I thought a great group of people, but I yeah. thought, man. They wear white. It's not slimming. I would never be in this order. <laughs> these white hats make your hips look so big. I could never be in any kind of order where the garb was white. It just yeah. doesn't make, it's, it's great for summer, but it's not, it's not slimming. So, so you, uh, you, why this podcast? So you, so you wrote for this grant for, from the Templeton Foundation, right? You got a nice grant to, to work on this virtue project. And at the heart of it is the podcast. Why did you choose this format where, where you talk to these intellectuals about literature? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's very interesting. It's very well done. But like, how did you, how long did it take for that creative process to unfold where you're like, okay, this is what we're going to do? Or, yeah. Like, so like a lot of the best things in my life, it was a complete accident. Um, I, I really, so it actually wasn't central to the grant. So the grant went on for three years and the central part of the grant was scholarly. So we had about 35 different scholars, um, theologians, philosophers, and social scientists of various stripes um, that would come together and talk about issues relating to virtue, happiness, and meaning of life, which was the topic of the grant. So we had, so most of our output 
outputs were like strictly speaking very academic, right? Um, private workshops, uh, books, articles, this kind of thing. Um, and then we did a couple of what we called public outreach stuff. So we had some big lectures um, and we did some public things. And then at the end of the grant, uh, I got a phone call from my co-PI, Candace Vogler, being like, yeah, so it turns out there's like all this money that we didn't uh, spend. And it turns out... I'd be like, go directly to Vegas. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Yeah, so it turns out you can't do that. And so I was like, she's like, we got to spend this money. And I'm like, huh, okay. And having no idea what I was doing, I was like, I'll do a podcast now. What I know now is that that's actually a really bad way to spend money because podcasts are actually pretty cheap. Um, but I made it a little bit expensive by like paying everyone pretty handsomely for coming on the podcast. Uh, but I really had no idea what I was doing. It was towards the end of the grant. And they were like, well, what kind of podcast do you want to do? And I didn't have an answer to that question. So I had to reflect. And I realized that... Um, what we needed in moral philosophy generally, uh, but also I think in theology, um, was a more sustained engagement with literature. And I thought that for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I was doing this interdisciplinary project and I was just sort of coming into the realization of how deep my own academic silo was. Um, but I also um, was coming to see that it's actually really a problem um, for philosophers and moral philosophers in particular that were no longer looking at the moral life in the particular, right? And this is especially important for a virtue ethicist where it's all about, so practical wisdom is all about um, making the right sort of judgment in the particular. And of course, novels, um, novels especially, but even plays and somewhat to a lesser extent poetry is about human life in the particular. And so I, I wanted to have a podcast where we were exploring these questions about happiness and meaning of life by looking at particular stories and particular situations. And so that was the main idea that we have a lot to learn, um, from art. And so I wanted to talk about yeah, I wanted to talk about grace and how grace impacts virtue, but I wanted to talk about it through the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. I wanted to talk about self-deception and how fantasy and ideology and self-deception can prevent you from seeing reality. But I wanted to do it by talking about Madame Bovary because it's like the best case of it that I know. Um yeah, so that so that was the basic idea. So um, right now I've got an episode coming out on King Lear. Um, I'm going to be doing Lolita, which I'm very excited about. Uh, next week I'm doing The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so we're just the, – the podcast – I also had no idea if anyone would ever listen to the podcast besides like my mom and my husband. And it's really popular and I'm, I'm really gratified that it's, um, you know, that it's something that's speaking to people. Yeah. It seems like some of what you're doing, I mean, it, I, I feel like in this day and age where there's so much media content and, and stories all around us, it seems like su it's such a powerful thing to have a baptized imagination, right? Where oh, absolutely. You can, you can look out in reality and see these echoes of, 
the gospel, you could see the echoes of redemptive themes and things like this. Where that, I think that having that in in a cultural moment like this, in any cultural moment, is great. But especially in ours, it seems like one of the greatest things one can be equipped with is as you're in the pilgrimage of the spiritual pilgrimage in this time and place. Yeah, and I and I also just you know. Um... I, I, like everyone else in my line of work, is very worried about the way that the humanities generally is getting crowded out um, and the way that its value is becoming obfuscated. So on the one hand, you have you have a critique from the right wing that it's useless, you know, useless knowledge, perhaps suspect. And then from the left, you have this idea that, oh, well, it's interesting, but only insofar as it gets taken up into various political goals, right? So literature is worthwhile if it's advancing democracy or something. Um, and I just fundamentally want to reject both of these and say, no, <laughs> um, it's worthwhile in itself because it gives us knowledge, right? It gives us greater self-knowledge. It gives us a greater capacity to see reality clearly in part by, uh, as you say, um, putting things, putting certain things into our imagination. And this is, of course, great literature. Obviously, just reading Pulp Fiction um, is not something that I recommend. Um, but engaging in great literature, um, part of the point is to educate you in the old-fashioned sense, right? And in the sense of make you a better person, it's supposed to be transformational, but it's also an opportunity to engage in solitude, right? Um, so literature is not escapism, <laughs> um, but when properly done, it's a, it's a kind of solitude and people really need this and young people especially really need this. Young people are very lonely, they're very anxious. They're very depressed. This we know. Um, but what they don't have is the space for real solitude. Um, and they have a lot of what I would call a, a, a simulacrum of social engagement. That is to say the kind of social engagement that you have in social media, which is not the real thing. I'm curious, as someone who's a philosopher and a person of faith, what's the biggest sort of like problem for you that's like uh, in the brackets got a question mark like gosh like yeah this is a tough argument or this is a tough question that when it comes up like this is a hard one to deal with like uh, i don't always have a great answer for this oh you mean like when when am i are you asking me like what about my faith i'm most uncertain of or that i feel well, like just, i can't really just, defend yeah yeah what what kind of like gets you like kind of like a little squeamish you're like yeah this is a tough one for me too kind of thing <laughs> There's probably um, there's probably a bunch of them. I mean, I would suppose that something that worries me a, a lot, um, well, maybe worry is too strong, but something that um, sometimes I fail to be as articulate as I would like to be about um, is, you know, the, the nature of freedom in relationship to sin. Um, so I started, somebody asked me to write a paper on sin. Uh, and so I wrote a paper on sin and I was looking at Aquinas on sin. Did you have to do more sinning to write it? Like, Hey, I got to get into the research. See, again, go to Vegas. This yeah. is where you can take the money and go to Vegas. <laughs> so, uh, I don't need any practice with sin. It turns out. Um, but so the, the thing that, so I think that Aquinas has a really powerful theory of sin, um, it sort of explains 
the phenomenon. Um, but what, but, but then there's a point at which, right, the, the answers start to look less like answers and more, um, just statements of what you're supposed to think. So for example, um, Aquinas is really good at explaining the kind of sin that you and I engage in, and he has a very powerful theory for that. But when it comes to explaining the sin of Adam and Eve, it feels a little less powerful. And then when it comes to explaining the fall of the devil, it looks even less powerful because in the case of the devil, you have an angelic creature, so they're not going to sin from passion. They're not going to sin from ignorance, right? These things that really easily explain our sin. Um, they're not, he's not going to sin from a settled habit because an angel just makes a choice at the moment of his creation. Like you're either for God or against him. Um, so there's no like history of choices, which form a disposition in a certain way. And then, well, you know, I made a series of bad choices and now it's become hardened and blah, blah, blah. The way we can explain like a vice, None of that is available to you when you're trying to understand the fall of Satan. And what Aquinas ends up saying is that, well, it was the sin of pride, where that means that um, it's not that Satan um, is stupid. So it's not that Satan didn't realize that God is higher than him. He's got access to the manual, That's the right. technical manual. So, like he knows. So he he knows what's going that. on. He sees that in order to be with God, then he has to accept God's grace. And he sees that he stands in need of God's grace, but he just like fundamentally doesn't like that, right? Um, so he's more interested in living a life where, um, you know, his actions redound to his own glory. And so that's why he chooses against God. Now that's an explanation, but it just pushes, it just pushes the question back. It's like, oh, okay. But like, I'm sorry, why was that attractive to Satan? That is to say, how did Satan become proud? And there I think Aquinas, there's not an answer. Like, how did he become proud? Um, yeah, yeah, there's and, no and, developmental and, story there of like Satan is a small boy. <laughs> like, exactly. Here it was. Like, like, here it was. It was not enough love from his, his, yeah, his, like his angelic mother. Yeah, you can't his right? mom, thank God. Um, yeah. and, and so I, it feels sort of like, okay, like I can understand this up to a point, but there's still like a mystery there, right? And And I feel like the mystery is like freedom of the will. And I sort of feel like, okay, but now I'm at the point where reason runs out like philosophy can't do anymore here you know we just like we we can we can tell you um we can give you an account where it's not contradictory um and we can explain it but like it's gonna leave there's it still leaves you with a sense that like you don't really understand but i think for a person of faith like that you know you you have to start to be comfortable with that that yeah like i i, yeah. I don't have an answer for how satan became proud i truly and do not do, and don't you think like this is i think challenging when like i think young earth creationists have a great situation because the sort of prima <laughs> really? facie well, well i mean her, for reading the bible right the prima facie thing is creation fall redemption right so you have the the, the golden age act 1 and then act 2 you get the fall and all the things we hate, you know, mosquito bites, earthquakes, all the, you know, like, uh, you know, all the, all the things that make creation a tough place to live. You could say, well, it's because of the fall, right? You know, the birth, you know, some of the stuff is, is even said in, in Genesis. But then when you think, well, if we take seriously, which 
what we know about, which is a Catholic, of course, you're inclined to do like everything we know about the extensive age of the earth before human right. existence. Yeah. Then we, we know like dinosaurs died of terrible, painful, deliberate, you know, de- yeah. debilitating diseases. So a lot of these things that we think are, or I'd say, you know, tr- something like Augustine or Aquinas would say, well, these are effects of the fall. They're not like, I mean, these things are things that far predate human existence. Things right. like that, that, that we seem to think are, are signs of natural evil or things like this. So, so you, and then how do you get sort of like, what about prehistoric people? What's there, you know, and what's I, all these things. I think that, that, the the sort of, you know, no, no tension, tension, and the conflict arises. And then it's the, the story of redemption, healing the conflict that gets messier. I think when, when we have a picture of, of, you know, the age of the earth and, and things like this, that, that, uh, and I don't think it means that believing in God is unintelligent or anything. It just means that, some traditional ways of making sense of the story probably are, are a little have to be adapted. Well, yeah, I mean, but I think to be totally honest, I think it was messy for Aquinas, um, and he could have had. I mean, I, Aquinas didn't read Genesis literally any more than Augustine did, any more than the early fathers did. A literal reading of Genesis is a very newfangled thing, but um, but look, the mystery of sin. Um, doesn't depend on, um, a non-literal reading of Genesis. It's mysterious, even if it's literally true. Um, like, how is it that an angel, how is it that the highest angel fell? Um, that is to say, how could an angel that God created as good turn from God? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. That's a tough one. I mean, that's tough. it's. I mean, I mean, when your kid you gets can, that in catech- say, catechism class, yeah, like you, it's kind of stuff an eight year old would ask in catechism. You know, you can say, "Oh, fourth graders are absolutely brilliant theologians." Um, that's like my favorite year of CCD is fourth grade because um, they're willing to just ask whatever question strikes them, and they're always good questions. Um, but look, I mean. Um, you can say, well, free will, right? And that's a good response to a certain extent, but then you, but that, that pushes the question back to, well, why is a capacity that allows you to choose against God and result in your eternal damnation a good capacity? Wouldn't it have been better if God created you such that you would reliably choose the right thing? Um, especially when it's unclear, <laughs> like, why the wrong thing seems attractive to you. Did God create you defectively? And there the answer has to be no, right? It can't be that God just, like, messed up. Um, it The answer has to be from you. But there's a question about how can it really be that the wrong thing, how can you be attracted to evil? Um, and yeah, here I, I want- Aquinas, again, he has a powerful theory up to a point. And then I think it just becomes a little mysterious. Yeah. And I think it could, some of that stuff, I always think, I wonder if like, if there's a, pre, if there's a pre-modern sense that like to look at like creation's goodness lying in its sort of golden ageness, right? Like almost perfection, you know, uh, and then the fall happens and it kind of goes into decline. And there's this sort of, I, I wonder if creation's initial goodness lies not in its perfection, but its perfectibility. Like it's the kind of place where the lion doesn't lay down with the lamb, but it could become that way. And so I wonder if some of these tragic things in the beginning are part of 
uh, its goodness lies not in its perfection, but its perfectibility. It's the kind of place that can go from a tragedy to a love story, you know, go from tragedy to comedy. Like, so the, so its sensibility comes in like the fact that the story can go on and have a flourishing finish. Well, I think that's frankly, you know, that's, that's very much what Thomas wants to say in the sense that he wants to lean on this idea that, look, our capacity, our spiritual capacities, so our capacity for intellect to know and understand reality and to assimilate our minds to reality and our capacity to make choices, um, so to attain and realize goods for ourselves through choice. Um, these are our spiritual capacities, and they are the potentiality that we have for our perfection. But it's a potentiality. And every exercise is an actualization of that potential. But it's either it's either a good exercise or a bad exercise. And so I think that's fundamentally what Thomas wants to say. Um, but it does leave it a little mysterious why why the highest angel would choose sin. Why the highest angel would choose against the highest good. Knowing if that's your biggest philosophical problem, if that's your biggest problem as a Catholic philosopher, you're doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, once it gets back to Lucifer, I really struggle. I don't have a good, you know, it's, if, if you were, if what is there a philosopher, let's say a living philosopher, if you could have an argument with any living philosopher, who would it be? And what would the argument be about? Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, of course I do have, but, uh, lots of arguments with living philosophers. Um, like your husband. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's my life. Um, I mean, I certainly know, uh, what, what dead philosophers I want to talk to. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's okay. It. Let's say 20th century. Let's say 20th century beyond, like, like 20th century. Like who would you sit down with? Oh, I want to talk to Elizabeth Anscombe. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Now, what would you talk about? Um, wow. I, I, I suspect we'd have a lot to talk about. Um, well, I'd want to talk to her about why, um, I would want to ask her how much of a synthesis she thinks is possible between Wittgenstein and St. Thomas. Because I think the way that I understand her work, and one thing that I think is especially brilliant about it, is that she's trying to forge a kind of Wittgensteinian, a kind of it's it's a kind of analytic Thomism. I mean, I don't like that label, but there's something to it. So she's trying to fuse the tradition of Frege and Wittgenstein on the one hand and Aristotle and Thomas on another. Um, and and her contribution and, and the way that she does this is incredibly brilliant. Um, but there but there but there are certain tensions there, and I would just like to talk to her about whether to what extent those tensions can be resolved. I would definitely ask her what exactly she meant when she said that um, essence is revealed by grammar. <laughs> well, well, because 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 the analytic that analytic tradition you're talking about, right, is like. Hey, philosophy can talk about words and language games and things like that, but it, it, it's not going to, we, we don't, we're not dealing with metaphysics, the true, the good, and the beautiful in this classic sense. I mean, these two things seem to have different kind of projects, right? Yeah, like, well, so that seems to be a collision. It I mean, prima facie, yes, but prima facie, the idea that Jesus Christ is both God and man looks like a contradiction, right? So sometimes what prima facie uh, looks like it can't be resolved can. And I mean, my sense of Anscombe is that she thinks, no, I mean, I think she reads 
Wittgenstein as saying, no, I mean, yeah, we want to make a grammatical investigation, but only insofar as that's an investigation into reality. Um, and so there's a certain reading of the Tractatus, but also of the investigations and his later writings in which that's the project. And, you know, that's a really controversial uh, claim, but it is one that she makes at several points. Um, and, you know, it, so, so yeah, I, I, I would definitely want to talk to Elizabeth Anscombe about this kind of stuff. If you could sit and have dinner with the current Pope, like, what would you want to talk to him about? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, wow. Um, gosh, I feel like I'd have a lot to ask him as well. Um, would you start with why the fall of Satan? Sit in the chair. Give me an ex cathedra. <laughs> no, because I don't think that. Um, so I'm not a. I'm not one of the Francis haters, but I definitely don't think that Pope Francis is is a is a theologian or even especially theologically minded, which is fine. Um, you you don't have to be a good priest or a, a good pope to. Uh, you don't have to. Sorry, I, I don't think that all good priests are good theologians, and that's fine. Sure, sure. But I definitely, I, I, I definitely I would, would not ask him theological questions, um, because I don't think we would see eye to eye about them. But I suppose that I would want to talk to him about uh, some of the things that he said, <laughs> what exactly he meant by them. Uh, but, I, but I might also ask him um, if he's worried about the church in Germany. Um, because I think the church in Germany right now seems like it's on a collision course, uh, with the church and the rest of Rome. And I wonder if he reads it the same way or if he's even worried. And I'd also ask him about those pesky Americans who give him so much trouble and whether he's bothered by it. What if you could have dinner with Benedict the 16th, Emeritus, the Emeritus Pope? What would you want to talk with him about? Because he is more of a, a, a theologian and has some good philosophical chops. Uh, he's an excellent theologian by any estimation. Um, I'd ask him why he resigned. Oh, I'd that's ask a great him question. why he really resigned. Um, and I'd ask him if he regrets it. Oh, that's interesting. Are there theological things you'd want to talk about? Or <laughs> you're going right for page six. Why did you're like Barbara Walters? Why did you resign? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me now. Yeah. Uh, theologically. Um, hmm. I suppose theologically, I might want to ask him why he didn't write more about Aquinas, why he was more invested in um, a non-Thomist theological project. You know, was it just a, a kind of sociological thing? You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't acceptable at the time. Or did he think that um, Thomism wasn't the right framework post-Vatican II? Um, like, why turn your back on um, Aeternus Patris? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because he is a, he is a, I mean, he is probably the greatest, arguably, you know, Catholic theological mind, at least at the second half of the 20th century, and or one of them. I mean, yeah. Von Balthasar. Uh, but especially since he wasn't working professionally academically, he had to do other things, you know, mm -hmm. administrative things. But yeah, he is, this, he is, he's more modern. And, and I think has more sympathy. He understands Protestantism better than a lot of, I think, better than some prominent Catholic thinkers. Like, I, he, you know, he... he I think that's he, probably because he's German, right? Right, right. And yeah, and it's... And I found his Jesus books, I say to any seminarian, if you want to read 
the best thing on Jesus in the Gospels. It's his books on Jesus of Nazareth. Hands down, Protestant or Catholics, the best thing to understand the Gospels. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. I mean, he's, and, a, he's a very deep thinker. You just can't deny him that. Have you ever heard of Tomas Halik? I have not. He's um, a Czech Catholic priest who and a, and a professor who became a priest when Czechoslovakia was behind the Iron Curtain. He had to do it in secret. So he worked as a psychoanalyst. psychoanalyst. Yeah. And he's amazing. I mean, I think he's the theologian for today, sort of the missionary theologian, where I think he just gets... Um, he just gets so much of our cultural moment because of his context. But he has this great, I just want to share this with you this, and see what you think of it. He's talking about Nietzsche's phrase, God is dead in, in the gay science. He says, God is dead. The sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. I, I find that interesting because he sort of, he has this sort of seeming open hand to the Nietzschean secular crowd and sort of saying, yeah, like... It's it's an interesting kind of take on the moment we're in. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, it's a mistake to think. So, if you're someone like me who really likes medieval philosophy, um, it's a mistake to think that um, you can just start doing that as if like nothing happened, as if the Reformation didn't happen, as if modernity didn't happen, as if post-modernity didn't happen, as if whatever mess we're in now isn't happening, right? And a lot of people who do work on Aquinas, I think, problematically do it in that mode. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do is to find a proper um, a, a, a proper kind of channel um, for bringing Thomas into conversation um, with us, right? Um, and to be something that we can make sense of within our own self-consciousness in which, yeah, there is a sense in which it's true to say um, that God is dead because he is for many people. <laughs> right. Um, and maybe even if we're honest in moments for ourselves. And so, um, some of the ways that Thomas is going to proceed aren't, aren't helpful anymore, even if they're true. Like they're, they're not modes of access for us. Um, and so this is why someone. And Thomas was facing something similar in his own time, right? Where the intellectual waves are changing. Aristotle's coming and, and influencing things in Europe in a way that it's challenging. The intellectual status quo. I mean, in some sense, Aquinas is 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 updating the faith. I mean, for exactly. a current that if, I don't, it's, if it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I don't think Thomas would be so happy with Thomism um, because um, that's not how because right because he was sort of this great synthesizer, right, um, which made sense for his moment, um, but you know, Thomas himself at the end of his life was like, everything I wrote is, is like meaningless, you know, in light of this mystical vision of God I've received. Um, and so I think that, I think that there was always a recognition of in Thomas that we have to take 
um, the resources at hand. And for him, the new scary uh, forbidden resource was Aristotle, but also some of the Muslim commentators on Aristotle. And, and you know, there was a huge battle. I mean, uh, Aquinas was uh, hugely opposed um, within the universities and also by the Archbishop of Paris um, precisely for uh, engaging with heretics, right? Um, but, you know, he, he was willing to make it work and he did make it work. You know, he did what everybody thought was impossible, namely bring somebody like Augustine and bring somebody like Aristotle together and, and say something true. What did they say in his canonization? Somebody raised the, there's not enough miracles. And, and I didn't the Pope, the current, the Pope at the time say, uh, there's one in every page of the Summa. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's really true. I mean, what he did is astonishing. And I think um, one of the reasons that he doesn't get credit for it anymore is because we're just simply too ignorant to recognize how astonishing what he did was. Um, but I think, you know, we must be called to a new sort of synthesis now. Um, and I see someone engaged in that process of synthesis and somebody like Elizabeth Anscombe, who's somebody that I write and work about a lot. But I think, you know, we, if we're, if we're interested, if we think that there's something true said in the high middle ages, um, we can't just like take these dusty tomes and be like, Oh, but look, it was all worked out in the 13th century, um, because it's not the 13th century anymore. And their problems aren't exactly our problems. Um, and we can't, you know, we can't pretend that they are. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there does have to be this kind of, um, really deep engagement with a world that's increasingly secular. Well, your work is doing that par excellence. So I want to commend to. Thanks. Uh, our listeners, your podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, and to head over to the Virtue blog. And I, I appreciate you spending some time talking with me about stuff that is important and that you're passionate about. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It was really fun. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jennifer for coming on the podcast. Do check out her podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, and go to the Virtue Blog to see what she's writing and thinking about. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.